Hmm. Sounds like about when you create a group, it doesn't want to do like a multi-call thing. Yeah. I want to do a multi-sex thing. Great way to get Paul in on this. <laughs> all, all guys, though. No holes barred. Works for me. Did you say no? Did, wait, did you say no holds barred or no holes barred? <laughs> holes, of course, you silly uh, bastard. Okay, all right. But if you want to put me in a, a sharpshooter, that's perfectly fine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's okay. Cross face chicken wing. <laughs> Actually, a guy who lo- looked exactly like Bob Backlund saved my life once. Anyone with that haircut looks like Bob Backlund, though. So. No, yeah, he actually held my brain together while they sewed my my head back together. Well, explain some things. Yeah, it does. I actually fell and hit a bumper of a truck for some reason when I was a kid. Uh, I don't know why. And my mom was like, "You get over here now!" Like yelled at this son of a bitch. Came out of the weight room and he's like, "Okay, sorry." You know, and pick me up, and and she's like, head together now, and like she like he, he she basically like screamed all the commands, and he did what she told me, and like they they drove my my dad's old truck with the stick shift all covered in blood all the way to the emergency room, and they sewed my head together, and oh. the guy the guy that looked at Bob back and held my head together the whole time when they sewed me together, so that's pretty awesome. He could have gave me the cross chase chicken wing, and it's like you know what I got this. Yeah, but yeah. I don't know. I don't know if it, it, it could have not been Bob Backlund. The thing is, you know, it would be so cool if it was. That would be weird. That would be a weird story to be able to but tell. But it's, it's, I mean, it still, it still is. That's why I have a perfect part, by the way. <laughs> perfect part right here, baby. Head cut open numerous times. The following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! We're back for They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. I don't remember what episode this is. Is it 91, I think, we're at now? 93. Is it? I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. It, 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 it's, been, it's been a couple weeks, and it's been a long time since Paul's been on. So, uh, Hi. Hi. Well, welcome back, Paul. He's, he's going to be on uh, Hopefully, I can do. I actually I can do these for about the next month. So I'm glad oh, to good. be back, and uh, hopefully you guys are glad to hear me back. Yeah, good. We'll we'll be able to have you on for some uh, good crime movies in the next little while. Then that'll be cool. good. Uh, but I am I'm your host Lee Russell. Of course, you just heard Paul returning, and uh, our other co-host Daniel Harper. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well, and I just looked it up. This is episode ninety-one. Okay, the sexiest second man on YouTube. The sexiest second man on YouTube. Yeah, Kevin Collins oh, like... is the first sexiest man. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, sexiest, sexiest, sexiest. <laughs> let's just let's just put it all on the table. We're all sexy. We don't have to. We don't have to fight. Mm. But of course, we're continuing our look at crime films. This one was a sort of uh, replacement for the Limey. We were originally going to do the Limey, but unfortunately, Bill Paxton died 
And so we thought we would throw in a simple plan as a little bit of a tribute to him. Before we get into that movie, I think we should uh, talk a little bit about Bill Paxton and his career and what it did or did not mean to all of us. Should I'll let you go first, Paul, uh, if you have any thoughts you want to want to say about Bill Paxton. Well, I don't know what to say that someone didn't say already. Um, basically, for me, he is the 80s. He is everything. He has been in every movie, basically, franchise that I can think of that I think is awesome. Weird Science starting. Stripes. Alien. Predator. Terminator. Can I go on, please? Mm -hmm. I mean, like, he has been everything. He was in Apollo 13, for God's sakes. This guy, in breath of his performances and his career, has to have been known as the nicest guy in Hollywood. Because there is no way a person of this caliber has had this breath of films. This guy has to be John Carradine of his age of films that have fallen into his lap because of his sheer determination and his sheer personability within the genre. Thank you. Goodbye. I wish I would have licked your nuts before you died. <laughs> when I, when I think about Bill Paxson it's it's kind of weird like he he was never really like the leading man like the big star but he had still sort of had that kind of uh aura around him he was always like a star who not only did big pictures like he'd he'd pop up in, in them but he seemed to make a career out of just showing up out of the blue in other films as well. No, like just... Absolutely. He was the, the class act of, like, the second man. He was the second man, but he was the first man, if you really look at his performance. Yeah. Um, it's amazing. Uh, what, what about you, Daniel? Uh, any sort of initial thoughts? I think for me, uh, Weird Science, Paul mentioned it first, and, uh, I mean, there's a reason for that. I think that's really the big one that I knew him from as a, as a kid. I know I watched that movie a bunch, and... Uh, you know, his Chet Donnelly, very memorable, even when he's not a giant piece of shit. I mean, he's always a giant piece of shit in the movie, but not even not in the scene where he actually is a giant piece of shit. And, um, you know, full nudity in that film as well. You know, he uh, takes the towel off and, uh, you know, would you cover yourself? You look ridiculous, you know. <laughs> So you gotta you gotta love that. He is one of those guys I know I know from so many things from my kind of growing up, uh, obviously near dark. Sorry, I'm looking at the list here. Predator two, which we covered. Right. Um, one that I've been really wanting to see that I've never seen, but I'm going to make, make the effort, is One False Move, because I've heard he's really amazing in that. I've heard that's a really great film. But God, you know, it's probably, you know, for me, it's really weird science, and then Near Dark, yeah. and yeah. Uh, then Apollo 13, Twister, and then later in his career, you know, uh, Simple Plan, which we'll talk about later, and uh, Frailty are really the ones that I really think of when I think about uh, Bill Paxton. The one film that I can say is, besides Twister, of course, because Helen uh, always always had a thing of help for Helen Hunt until she became a crack whore. Anyway, I'm just saying, uh, the one film that I've never seen, and I've actually got high recommendations from the, um, what's that bald asshole we do the show with? Uh, Lee? Grant, 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 Michael. It's the ugly guy, right? Right. Lee, 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 Lee is frailty. He said that's still... the number one film. The number one film you have to see is frailty. I still haven't seen it. Well, we're gonna have to cover it on the show and actually force you to watch it then. Oh. yeah, I saw that theatrically, and that's amazing. 
Yeah, that and that's one of his very few directing credits. I mean, other than that, he's got like maybe one more movie, and then he did the uh, Barnes and Barnes video for Fish Heads. That's kind of like his fish directing heads, credit. Fish heads, fish heads, roly yeah. poly, fish heads, fish heads, fish heads, eat them up, yum, yum. Yeah. Oh, uh, so good. The the ones I like him in, uh, I mean. Of course, Weird Science, and then you can talk about his... I mean, he even had a bit part in Commando, but, I mean, you know, Aliens... Who's he in Commando? He was just like a... a, a it's his intercept officer. Honestly, I don't even remember him from it, but he's in it there somewhere. It was, it was one of the guys that came in, and you saw a hand grab him in one fine, one of the small parts in yeah. an elevator. It like was one just, of those... He he just made his career out of like appearing in big movies in small parts, and then eventually worked his way up to like being a guy. Everyone I mean, knew. would you, would you really say that the role that he played initially in Alien was a big part? No, that wasn't a big part. That was a part that became bigger than it should have been due to his performance, though. I mean, and it's and one hundred percent, like you said, due to his performance, he took that fucking role, which was essentially he told in the story that I heard, was basically uh, um, toilet paper rolls and in, in made into a gun with duct tape. And he grabbed it, and he made that role. And thank God he did. I mean, he played a lot of just, like, jerkwad asshole characters. Yeah, I mean, ad- And when he was ad-libbing the whole time, he could ad-lib an asshole at a drop of a hat, but apparently he was actually a really cool dude. I mean, did you guys see him in uh, True Lies? Do you remember Yes, him? of course. Oh, he was a piece of shit in that fucking car with that fake mustache. He's the guy who's, pre- who's pretending he's a secret agent trying to Basically, romance Jamie he, Lee no, the best, the, the best thing, and I'm glad you actually mentioned this earlier uh, before our, my uh, drunken talk that you hear now. The best thing you ever mentioned in your life, by the way. Okay. If you don't just kill yourself. No, it's it's all right. I've hit my peak. I'm, 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 I'm yeah. cool with it. You compared Bill Paxton, and this is genius, by the way. Genius. You should actually get a chubby over this. You compared him to Bruce Campbell. And in True Lies, it is so awesomely compared to that. It, that is kind of a role Bruce Campbell. It is. Right? It yeah. is Bruce Campbell, Bill Paxton coming together in the same light. Because, honestly, the only person I could ever see fill that role in True Lies is, is, is Bruce Campbell. And you are such a genius. No wonder you host a show like this, Lee. Yeah. I actually, I'm forward me your dick and I'll suck it. Because this is worth it. It might get lost in the mail, though. It's too big. That's, that's well, I'll get a piece of it at least. Well, okay. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, that that's a, that's a funny role. He's just a scumbag. And Arnold Schwarzenegger basically makes him admit to the fact that he's a small dick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's so good. I think that like that's the quintessential Bill Paxton, Bruce Campbell reference right there. Because you yes. just you you brought you actually we had a we had a conversation a little bit before this, and he brought that up, and I was like, wow, Jesus, that is so perfect. Just just to put this out there, Paul's not amazed by my comparison here because he's just drunk and he doesn't know what he's saying. I'm I'm really that brilliant. No, no, um, I'm like no, I'm serious. I, I never thought of that until now. Yeah. Uh, did did you, either of you guys ever see uh, Club Dread? Yes, I did. I I was gonna bring that up uh, because his uh, alternate universe Jimmy Buffett is one of those like great moments that is easy to forget. Coconut and, he, and he did and he did the songs in it too. 
that's awesome. I didn't know we did the songs. Yeah, he did. We're we're that's going to be featured in this episode. Just oh, saying. nice. nice. Um, yeah. But yeah, uh, I mean, man, I've never heard anyone fucking say a bad thing about this guy, and he had so many memorable performances, and he died way too fucking young, and it's just a real goddamn bummer. But uh, well, all, all I have to say now is because Lee made fun of me the whole episode. Because I had a couple drinks in me, and now I want to kill myself. Well, don't do that. At least not until we get a couple more episodes out of you, anyway. Until episode 100, and I'm dead. That's right. After episode 100, if you want to go, then go. But... I'm dead. <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, uh, if anyone, had, unless anyone else has anything to say, we'll we'll move on to uh, what we've watched in the last little while. Again, I'm going to reserve uh, my own picks for next week and. I'll just let you guys talk. So uh, if you have anything, Paul, you can put it up there now. Well, I don't watch anything because I'm dead. Oh. And the only the I mean, I'm really really sad because I actually got a chance to watch um, Howard Lovecraft, which is a kids' film based on Lovecraft stories. And the kids stole my DVD, walked away with it, and I didn't get a chance to watch it. So sorry. I really wish I could give you some insight on that one. Well, maybe if you manage to steal it back from your children, then <laughs> then then you can uh, then you can tell us about it next time. How about you, Daniel? If you have anything you've watched in the last little while, I do. I have uh, two kids' films and then a, a little bit of TV. I figured I'd share with you guys. Mm-hmm. I did see Finding Dory because it showed up on Netflix, and my wife had seen it. And uh, we just sat down and watched it. It's not as good as Finding Nemo. It's cute. It's really saccharine, much more so than kind of the old school Pixar stuff, where it, it has heart, but it it's it kind of ban- manages to balance that with a kind of a um, a little bit more authenticity. Um, this is a, really just kind of playing on our memories of the first film, and it's also really uh, using a kind of Dory's disability in a uh, really exploitative way, I think. Um, and that's just kind of built into the film because it's all like, oh, you can do everything, Dory. I mean, your disability is what makes you special. And it's like, yeah, no, because she can't remember anything. Therefore, she has to be, uh, you know, it's, it's treating her disability as magic. And that's kind of a, a problem. She, but um, She can't yeah, remember anything? Is this memento? In I was going to say, that's basically most of my sex life. That's why it's a magic. <laughs> No, the idea is that the uh, the character has a uh, she has no long term memory, so she forgets everything after so many seconds. So yeah, it is very memento in that way. She was a minor character in Finding Nemo, or a, kind of the the third lead behind um, Albert Brooks and then Nemo himself. Okay, uh, wait, is she, in that. wait, wait, is she a goldfish? No, no, no. Oh, okay, because I've she's... never seen any of these movies, but. Oh, okay, okay. Well, yeah, Finding Nemo is... actually not, and that's the funny thing, is so goldfish have that kind of tendency, but she's not. I'm sorry. I'm a... All right. <laughs> um, no, no, sorry. I guess I should have explained the premise a little more. I was assuming that people had, like, already seen this, but... Yeah, no, uh, she's a major character in Finding Nemo, and then she gets her own movie, and it's just... It's kind of one of the cash-in sequels, and the whole point is that she doesn't have a memory she doesn't have long-term memory so as a child she got lost separated from her parents and then the whole thing is like she's trying to get back home to them and that's what finding dory is about yeah. and uh, like the adventure she gets in along the way and it becomes about family and extended families and all that sort of thing anyway it's you know it's fine it's just sort of like it, it has its problems and it's just sort of like it's just more about like how pixar used to be one of the greatest film companies on the planet and now they are 
they're just they're really coasting in a lot of ways. Like technically speaking, it's phenomenal. There's some really great animation in it. But it just it, it they've definitely lost some lost their touch a bit. The other uh, film I'd mention is I did get to see the Lego Batman movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, have you seen the Lego movie, Lee? No, I I hate Lego with a passion, and I'll never watch the oh. movies. But okay, well, uh, the Lego movie, the original, was fun and kind of snarky and ninety minutes long, and kind of like did what it did about as well as you can imagine it being done. The Lego Batman movie, it's good. It does suffer from sequelitis. It is, again, a little bit too saccharine. It, it really kind of plays up this family theme a little bit stronger than it needs to. Uh, but Will Arnett plays Lego Batman, and he's amazing mm -hmm. um, because he's always got the uh, phenomenal voice for voice acting. Um, and he plays this kind of pomposity uh, really, really well. This is a film that harkens back to like literally every single era of Batman on screen including the 40 serials oh, yeah. um, are, are kind of played in at some point. So if you are a, a just a fan of Batman, this is definitely worth checking out. Really one of the best films about Batman, because it doesn't take the concept remotely seriously, and because it's kind of making fun of the whole idea of, you know, yeah, your parents were, were shot, and therefore you live in a cave and pretend to be a bat and all that sort of uh, crazy stuff. So right. it's a lot of fun. It's definitely worth seeing. Probably not worth seeing in theaters unless you're kind of going as a kind of a date movie or something like that. It'd be fun for that. But uh, definitely worth a rental or a, uh, you know, I'm sure if it shows up on some streaming service, it's worth checking out. Or yeah. uh, va various means of getting it, you know, down the line once it's released. Plus so. the uh, Batman takes on the Third Reich finally. It's, it's worth checking out. Oh, okay. I must have missed that bit. <laughs> but uh, Rosario Dawson's in it, and she's amazing. So, uh, you know, no, does, no does, wait, wait, does, does Rosario Dawson take on the Third Reich at any point in this movie? Rosario Dawson takes on the Third Reich, Reich by her existence. Oh, okay. You know, like, Nazis die when it's supposed to Rosario Dawson. That's, that's what happens. And basically, she becomes Deadpool. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Paul, thank you for joining us, sir. But since you did not watch the movie, and this time yeah, you really you did. didn't watch the movie. I, I know, I, I really didn't watch the movie. You know what? I think that the basis is amazing, and you know what? I would have did everything differently. Yeah, I, I, I actually did. When I was talking to Paul earlier, I explained the plot to him. So he, he told yeah, me like, how like, like, he would Everything do it would be differently. Like, obviously, are, they, are you serious? Like, I just don't understand, like, concepts of what the film is about. Like, I really, like, wow. Okay, different. I was just a different dude. Uh, but hopefully we'll have you back in the next couple of weeks there, Paul, for uh, some more episodes and some crime Well, I mean, as far as Dan Lee Hugo, I hope not, because you're so better without me. But at the same time, I hope I will, because I really have a lot of fun doing this. Yeah. I will mute immediately until further notice. All right. Well, uh, we'll catch you later, Paul. Have a good night, sir. See you later, Paul. Nice to chat with you. Well, goodbye. I didn't know you were going to cut it off. It makes me cry. <laughs> they call me the mayor Cause I spend all my days here You would too If you knew what I know Pina Colada A tropical tree Suck straight from the coconut's teeth When it's just right Makes your short ears grow Got a hole in my straw hat Two tires on my Jeep flat Maybe today I'll stay
of the sun But the ladies are flocking That means it's time to start cocking That brain freeze nectar That fills my poor gun Hoisting another glass In Pina Colada Burk Coconut milk with a pineapple splash don't forget that the rum comes first. Pass the flat on my ass in Pina Colada Bird. Bloodshot eyes and a sore mustache. Mouth tastes like pinata turd. Promise not take it slow. Down in Pina Colada Bird. Boost of lava is starting to flow. Yes, I'll have to break my word. All right, we can get into our feature film now, and we're going to be talking about A Simple Plan from 1998. Look at all them birds. Those are always waiting on something to die so they can eat it, right? What a weird job. That's an airplane. I wonder how long it's been here. It's probably one of those drunk doctors, you know, they're always crashing their plane, you know? Oh my God, look at this. Over $100 bills. I bet it's drug money. You know what, if this guy's a dope dealer, we're just like Robin Hood. <laughs> it's a police matter now, what do you think we should do? What if we didn't turn it in? It's stealing. It's the American dream and a gym bag. He just wants to walk away from it. You work for the American dream, you don't steal it. Then this is even better. <laughs> Look how square it is. So somebody comes searching for the money, I'll burn it. Look, we gotta be agreed on this. Would you have done the same thing? I mean, if you'd been there instead of me. I wish somebody else had found that money. Does it scare you? Yeah, it scares me. What if he tells somebody? Just stick to the story and we'll skate right through. Man from the FBI is gonna be driving through. Seems they're looking for a lost plane. I want my share. Plan was to sit on the money oh, till we on, decide man. that it's safe to keep. It's like there's two sides now. We're all in this together, man. If you had to pick right now, who would it be? You, you're my brother. From now on, we have to be thinking ahead all the time. There's someone who's been properly trained. There are many ways to detect a liar. You're just a normal guy, a nice, sweet, normal They're gonna guy. They're going to know. No, they won't. You think you can take us out there? Can you tell us what this is all about? Looking for a plane? I'm taking the money back right now. You gotta get out of there. Everything okay? He's gonna shoot all three of you as soon as he sees the plane. Don't move! We gotta make this look like it was an accident. They're not gonna take me away, are they? We're the ones who need that money! He just wants it! Put the gun down! Take off! Well, I'm trying to come up with a plan. Don't turn your back! Yeah. 
Directed by Sam Raimi, written by Scott B. Smith, uh, based on his novel. It is starring Bill Paxton as Hank, Bridget Fonda as Sarah, Billy Bob Thornton as Jacob, Brent Briscoe as Lou, Jack Walsh as Tom Butler, Chelsea Ross as Carl, Becky Ann Baker as Nancy Chambers, and Gary Cole as Baxter. And if you have a synopsis for us of any sort, Daniel, now is the time. I do. And here it is. Right on. Once upon a time in rural Minnesota, accountant Hank Mitchell, his simple but kind brother Jacob, and Jacob's alky friend Lou discover a downed plane half buried in the snow while hunting in a nature preserve. Inside the plane are a shitload of crows, a decaying body, and $4.4 million in cash. Hank, straight-laced and one of the few educated men in town, initially wants to turn the money over to the police, but is quickly convinced by his companions to keep it. Hank will only engage in the scheme if he himself hangs on to the money until the plane is discovered, presumably when the snow melts, and he thinks little of the mental abilities of his two compatriots, especially after Jacob mentions hearing a plane to the kindly sheriff, an idea put into his head by Lou. Despite swearing Jacob and Lou to complete operational security, Hank immediately tells his very pregnant wife Sarah about the cash, and soon she is thinking ahead and decides that Hank must put some money back in the plane to aid in appearances when it's eventually discovered. Hank takes Jacob with him as a lookout while he goes back to the plane, although he does not inform Jacob of the real reason for their turn, and after replacing the paltry sum, he returns to Jacob only to find that Jacob is in a heated discussion with an elderly local resident, a discussion that ends with the resident having his head bashed in with a tire iron. The scheme now having risen to murder, Hank figures out how to make things work right and decides to stage in a snowmobile accident to explain the death. While transporting the body, the old man starts to wake up, and Hank smothers him rather than risk him informing the police of his brother's crime and risking his own complicity being discovered. And thus it goes, as the initial victimless theft leads Hank slowly but inevitably to increasingly desperate and often ingenious attempts to cover up and explain the twisted web of lies, half-truths, and violence that results. As the tension mounts, psychological complexities surface and old family agonies drive a wedge between Hank and Jacob, leading Jacob to ally himself even closer to his alcoholic friend Lou. All the while, Sarah remains cool but ruthless, doing her due diligence, discovering that the crash is proceeds from a bank robbery and helping Hank scheme against, against his brother and his friend. And in the end, lots of people die, some by their own hand, a baby is born, darkness has enveloped the lives of the survivors, and Hank's hope for a quiet but comfortable life have been destroyed because when millions of dollars are at stake, there's no such thing as a simple plan. Nice. Uh, I'll just correct one thing there. The proceeds are not from a bank robbery. They're from a kidnapping payoff. Ah. Ah. But, uh, but other than that, excellent, sir. And I'll just throw over to you. What are your sort of initial thoughts on this one? This is one I saw theatrically, you know, nineteen ninety eight. Right. <laughs> you know, when it when it was released. It's almost I should've I should have warned people, like, don't listen to this synopsis until seeing the film. Just mm. because knowing as little as possible about it and not having really high expectations of it, I think are, are really um key because it really is a film that's it's a small film. It's it's yeah. very character based. It's very built around sort of the these really these four characters, um, Hank Lou Jacob and then Sarah, the, these kind of four people and just sort of the way that they interact and the way that they suggest things to each other that um, mm. lead down these these paths of that just tighten the screws tighter and tighter. Um, it's about these relationships and it's about these family dynamics and it's about socioeconomics in a kind of interesting way and about sort of the way that uh, the way that the, the, the college boy just doesn't fit in with right. the old uh, you know the old high school buddies the way maybe he would like to or maybe doesn't even care if he does anymore. Um, I, I think we'll definitely can get into that. There's a, there's a lot of really interesting subtle character work being done here. This is uh, directed by Sam Raimi 
and this was kind of his uh, big stab at, at kind of serious street cred. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a few years before he made the uh, the first Spider-Man film. Right. And uh, it kind of proved that he could do more than just, you know, the as much as we love the Evil Dead movies, you know, he, he I think he was he was kind of seen as this kind of ghettoized B director yeah. until and this was the thing that really like like no no he can he can do real like real work, you know. Although there are hints of the old Raimi uh, stuck in here where, yeah. where it's uh, needed. Um, in particular, one shot, uh, which I, I guess we'll uh, mention when we get yeah. there. But, you know, God, I loved this movie when it was new. I think I came to it kind of it was it was it kind of was on a bunch of critics lists, you know, kind of at the time. Yeah. Um, Andrew Ebert gave it four stars back in the day. And this was uh, I kind of discovered this is one like L.A. Confidential I discovered very soon after I had kind of become a movie geek. And so it just kind of blew me away. Mm-hmm. And then I revisited it a, a handful of times in the kind of previous you know, 15, 17 years, whatever. Mm-hmm. Rewatching it a couple of weeks ago, because we did have a couple of weeks uh, break there, I've, I've kind of rewatched it a couple of times. And, uh, you know, the some of the flaws are a little bit uh, more apparent today than they were then. It is two hours long, and, and, I mean, to some degree, you kind of feel the length. Yeah. But, but you know, a 90-minute version of this would basically be just kind of the spare crime films that we're kind of used to seeing. Yeah. The extra 30 minutes, what they do is they add in the... the they give you that, like, social dynamic and that complexity that, that really is the key to why this film works the way it does and why it is still memorable and not kind of just lost or forgotten. But, um... Yeah, for me, when I think Bill Paxton, this is the thing I think of. And honestly, when I think Billy Bob Thornton, this is the thing I think of as well. Um, I think that you're, 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 you're talking career best performances for both of these actors here. I kind of love it to bits, despite the things that it, I guess we'll talk about later, the, the things that it maybe doesn't do as well as it might. It's a bit of an unheralded masterpiece these days, and I, um, I'm glad we're talking about it, and I hope that people will discover it. Yeah, revisiting it for the podcast uh, just made me appreciate it even more. It fits really nicely into that sort of winter crime film kind of landscape kind of uh, thing you see. Like with Fargo, and I mean, the Coen brothers helped Sam Raimi, you know, informed him that, you know, maybe you should shoot it like this and and do this, you know, because you're using this winter landscape that they used in Fargo. But you, you see like Fargo... Also, kind of hints to me like the Ice Harvest and uh, Insomnia and the remake of Insomnia, yeah. because mm-hmm. it, it's got that just that really simple, pure white snow contrasts with the really dark, evil things that common people can do if you know if they're put in a really bad situation like this. Well, and then one of the differences, just just to kind of interject, uh, you know, one of the differences between like this and Fargo is that Fargo is very kind of flat. Mm-hmm. With broad expanses and lots of kind of like fresh white fluffy snow, mm-hmm. this feels a little bit more in that doldrums of winter. Yeah, when it's just kind of it's been cold for months. It's everything's kind of soggy and wet and dead and disgusting. And you know it doesn't it doesn't feel as quite as austere maybe as Fargo does. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think it and in both cases, I mean there there are aesthetic reasons for that. You know, Fargo is kind of about this kind of broad morality play, whereas this is very. I mean, this this is this is kind of up close knife work yeah. <laughs> in comparison, right? You know, this is very much about like these people and the shitty things they do to each other. And the ways that some of those shitty things are really about nursing old wounds from, you know, 30 years earlier and that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah, Sam, Sam Raimi's sensibilities are definitely in this, even though 
like you mentioned, this is his first stab at a, like a really serious work compared to his previous stuff, which was highly stylized. I mean, he, he's, he's, of course, famous for the Evil Dead stuff. But be, just before this, he had done um, uh, the Western, yeah, the Quick, and the, Quick Dead. and the Dead, which was highly, highly stylized. Like this was coming out of the wake of Unforgiven, which was like a deadpan, serious, realistic Western. And then you had this highly stylized, almost cartoonish Western. And then he jumps from that to this, which is very much more like uh, Unforgiven in a, in a lot of ways. It's, it's very, yeah. very stark. Well, it's interesting that this was like shopped around. That I mean, essentially, Ramy like Ramy didn't come in. Like Ben Stiller was going to direct this yeah. for a while, and then John Dahl. I think I'm just kind of looking at the mm-hmm. uh, the Wikipedia page. You know, it kind of goes through some of the. I mean, this went through uh, several years of, of sort of pre production of, of like people trying to get it made. Yeah. And then um, so so Ramy kind of comes in, and it, I mean, you definitely think okay, this is a little bit more like director for hire kind of kind of gig, mm-hmm. you know. Um, which isn't to say that's. I mean, you know, um, Raimi directs the shit out of it. I mean, it's, yeah. it's. I mean, one of the things that makes a low budget film like this work is just, especially when so much of it is shot either on interiors or is shot in kind of these, you know, two shots and three shots, and and you know, there's not a ton of action in this. There's not a ton of mm-hmm. movement. It's a lot of people sitting and talking. Mm-hmm. The real challenge for a director is to like make that visually interesting and find ways of kind of bringing, letting the performance stand on its own, but also kind of bring elements of it out that are going to uh, help accentuate the mood that you're trying to draw. And so everybody kind of has to be on the same page. Yeah. Raimi is smart enough to kind of get out of his actor's way a lot, mm-hmm. but still... You know, there are lots of really interesting shots in this. There's one when um, Billy Bob Thornton is talking about uh, the death of his friend Lou and his feelings about it. And there's this focus pull that happens. Mm -hmm. And this is one of those shots that I'm just, it's just, it's so simple, but it's so amazing. It just looks phenomenal because the two men are in frame. Bill Paxton is kind of like massaging, he's kind of doing this like motion where he's like touching. Uh, Billy Bob Thornton's back in the way that he used to do as a kid. And you see when he's talking, his face is in focus. And then they just pull focus, and then when Billy Bob is talking, it's his face that's in focus. And it's so much better. I mean, it's the sort of thing that, like, describing it, it sounds like a gimmick. And it is a bit of a gimmick. I mean, you know, but being able to not cut, being able to see both actors, be able to see the whole performance, and yet focus on that very tightly... So that we know what we're supposed to be looking at, I think, is a really uh, phenomenal piece of direction. One that yeah. um, has stayed with me in the in, in the nearly twenty years now since I've seen the film. You don't notice it as a gimmick because all the performances in this are so incredibly restrained and pulled back and honest, and there no one's you know stylizing to performances as oh here's a neo noir, so we should you know try to maybe make some sort of caricature out of our characters or something like that. It, everyone here feels like a real person. I think that's one of the things that really strikes me with this one and kind of like really cuts into me that I know people like this. Both, 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 me too. Yeah, both you and I grew up in, in rural environments and we both know people like this, small town environments. Coming from a family where I have a brother and I'm not saying our family is as fucked up as this family because you find out a lot of shit in this family that is really fucked up, deep-seated. But, I mean, brothers do have a special relationship where they carry stuff in their family, and it doesn't get talked about. It gets buried. Yeah. A lot of stuff gets buried in this film, and it gets dug up as the film progresses. As these people begin to mistrust one another, and as they begin to play each each other against each other, 
whether they intend to or not, a lot of just deep-seated angst and and deep-seated feelings of resentment and old wounds get opened up and it's goddamn heartbreaking at times to see this shit because it's just so realistic like you feel the pain in all of these characters especially billy bob thornton's character which he's just the sad pathetic guy who has just had this really pathetic life the way he talks he talks at one point about like back when he was in high school and this girl was bet that she wouldn't go out with him for Mm -hmm. a month or something like that so i mean literally the way he describes it is you know i kind of knew you know, that, that it wasn't real, but, like, we talked, and we had some good conversations, and I held her hand that one time, and that was cool, and, like, that, that that's the level of interaction this guy has had with, uh, like, like, physical interaction in a, in a kind of intimate way. Yeah, he says he's never kissed a girl, and this is guy in right. his 40s. Right, right, I mean, and I watched this performance, and, you know, Billy Bob Thornton, particularly at this point, he was still getting a lot of, like, good notices for, like, Sling Blade. Mm-hmm. And I don't particularly like... I mean, the best thing about Sling Blade is John Ritter for me. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Billy Bob Thornton, I mean, I get why people have nice things to say about him, but wow, was that such a we're-gonna-do-Forrest-Gump-again kind of performance. Well, it's, right? it's the... Uh, uh, have you seen Tropic Thunder? I have seen Tropic so Thunder. So it's it's the Tropic Thunder rule. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, for, the, well, for, forgive well, the term, well, but don't go full retard, basically, is, is what, right. you know. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's tough to even, like, talk about these things. But, I mean, yeah, no, the whole, the whole, you know, that's almost the trope name, although I Am Sam is the real one, right? For, oh, for, God, um, that's so terrible, yeah. I think what's most admirable about Thornton's performance in particular is just the way that he doesn't go to that same well of tricks, right? Mm-hmm. Because you could very easily make this guy into just a complete simpleton. I mean, you could go full, you know, Sling Blade or Forrest Gump. Yeah, he, he's not. He's just, a, he's just kind of a good old boy who didn't do well in school, you know? He doesn't have the education his brother did. I mean, he's he's definitely divided from his brother as far as what he wants out of life, too. I mean, they're sure. very, very much different in that respect. I mean, he says at one point that... We have nothing in common other than the last name, really. And he yeah. means it. Like, he just totally st- starkly means it. Yeah, no, I, you, you look at... I look at just the way... I mean, there's this... Just on a performance level... I know we we got to talk about Bill Paxton in this, but mm-hmm. uh, we got to talk... I mean, Billy Bob Thornton is, is, uh, is so phenomenal. There's one moment right after they've uh, kind of discovered the money. They count the money. They've got it piled up in the back of the truck. And he has a line where he's like, you know, look at the money. Just look at it. Yeah. It's so square. Look yeah. how square it is. And just, like, he does this little hand motion. I'm doing it right now. Nobody can see. But he does this little <laughs> hand motion. And just, it's such a, I mean, part of, I mean, it, it's the writing, you know. Uh, Scott Smith is definitely, he knows this world. He knows these people. And, I mean, that's, that's such an authentic kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But it's also Thornton's performance in Raimi's direction to not draw attention to it, to just kind of let it be a little thing that you, that's just there that you notice but isn't drawn attention to. Like, he doesn't give it, like, a shot or anything. It's yeah. Sort of, no, yeah, look at how square it is. But that's such a it's such a knowing line. It's such a knowing, like, performance. Yeah, the, that... the small talk in this is beautiful because it, it just... It's it's so realistically done. It, 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 does, it doesn't feel like written dialogue. It feels like real people... The way real people talk, right? And yet it's not like improv, you know. Mm-hmm. Where, where a lot of improv just kind of has this, like, oh yeah, we're just fucking around, and we're we're not actually talking the way people talk. We're talking like actors doing a bit, you know. 
this isn't that. This is clearly well-structured, well-written dialogue. You know, it gets to its point and moves on, and yet it has such a strong authenticity. And that's writing, but also the performances. And, and you've got you to think, as an actor, kind of given these performances, to, given these roles, the impulse to kind of push it a little bit more in the Fargo-like direction. Right. You know? must have been really strong, you know. Mm -hmm. You see that all the time, particularly with films that are like set in the South, you know, where, you know, oh, we can't just be from Georgia. We got to be from Georgia. Yeah, we got to be from Georgia, mammy. Yeah. Exactly. And so, and this and this doesn't, I mean, it, it, again, it, it, I, I keep coming back to this. They just sound like human beings. Yeah. And that's so remarkable in a film like this. We should probably talk about some of the other actors other than Billy Bob Thornton. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Brent Briscoe as Lou is really, really good. Very, again, like I said, people I know in real life. Like, he's very much like that guy. That, you know, that guy who is in and out of welfare every once in a while. He's got a wife who is long-suffering, who is the one who is actually the breadwinner in the family because he's always yeah. out getting drunk. He is a loose cannon between those guys. I mean, he, he drives a wedge between uh, Jacob and Hank. There's a constant struggle between Jacob's loyalties between his brother and his best friend because he, again, he starkly says Lou's more of a brother to him than Hank's been, in, at least in the last few years. There's this real sort of pain that's brought up in that. And every once in a while you get, when he's kind of sober, you get uh, Lou's human side as well where yeah he there, he's got a lot of problems he's got a lot of character faults but he's not necessarily a evil person or, or or a bad person i think the thing with lou is and i think this is kind of the you know talking about just issues with the film we don't get quite enough about lou yeah um he's kind of just a wild card he kind of just shows up when the plot requires you know a, a some tensions to True, be drawn yeah. you know which i mean he's definitely tertiary in terms of what the film's trying to do i mean the film isn't about lou mm -hmm. i wonder how much is in the book i know i'm um, just kind of doing a little bit of background research i if i'd known we had three weeks to prep i might have tried to read the book <laughs> but um because we planned to do this uh you know uh three weeks ago but that, that's you know personal life gets in the way yeah. um no uh my read is that uh, the book is like a lot more violent and a lot more um Appar kind of Apparently so. Apparently Jacob dies in that confrontation at Lou's house. Uh, right, right. Apparently Hank is much more reprehensible. I mean, it feels a little bit more like like Stephen King, maybe, like kind of Bachman book kind of level. Right. Stuff. That's, uh, that's a good pull. I like that, yeah. The sense of, I mean, I haven't read the book, so I don't know for a fact, but that's sort of the read I get on, on the way that kind of people talk about it. Is it it's, it's a little bit more kind of playing up the gore and playing up the violence and, and you know, kind of going for, like, everybody's just kind of an asshole mm -hmm. all the time sort of thing. Then Smith himself adapted that into this very much more kind of spare, austere, kind of very straightforward kind of uh, human drama as a testament to his to his writing talent. Um, Back to, I'm sorry, what's the actor's name? I uh, don't have uh, it. Brent Briscoe. Brent Briscoe. Um, I know him. He has a... Uh, I guess you might know him from a lot more stuff than I do. Sorry, just looking at his list. I know him mostly as uh, he has a bit part in Parks and Recreation. Oh, really? Um, yeah, he he plays the uh, owner of a diner that of like a waffle place <laughs> that uh, that uh, Amy Poehler's character loves, and so uh, he's a he's sort of this character. He shows up every you know a, f a couple of times a season, right. kind of you know. 
Um, and so I rewatching the film, I'm like, where do I know that guy from? You know, like you always have that moment when you're, you know, like, oh right, that's JJ. I know JJ because mm-hmm. of JJ's diner, right? And he's he's very good here. It's easy to overlook him just because he's he is kind of the the fourth of the four. Yeah. But he's also the one that's he's the one stirring the shit the whole time. Mm-hmm. Like he's the one, you know, making the plot go. He's the one kind of making stuff happen. And he's the one who uh, ultimately, I mean, he dies first, right? Yeah, well, he's he's the most desperate one out of, out of all four. So he he's the one that is the you know the weak the weak end of it. Like he he's he's yeah, the yeah. weak thread. He's the one that if anyone's gonna fuck him, it's him. Yeah, I mean, you get you get hints of like gambling debts, and I guess right. that's sort of that's what's going on. And I mean, he's obviously he's into something if he's able to fund his you know alcoholism right. to the degree he does, you know. But he's also like you, you look at uh, I mean, he's got the line the lines um, where he's uh, making fun of uh, Hank's vocabulary, for instance. Mm-hmm. That was what you call an insinuating throw. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, like, that was, like, two months ago, dude. Like, seriously? Yeah. Um, um, you know, like, I use the word insinuate. Like, I like personally, I would not think that insinuating is a word that is is hoity-toity, you know? No. Like, it's not a word that has its pinky up drinking tea, No, it's, you know? it's just got too many syllables for him. You get from that Lou is someone who has a chip on his shoulder about right. uh, this, this is the response that a lot of people have. I mean, you know... I'm the black sheep in my family, you know. Um, I get this, you know, the the kid that went to college, the kid that uh, they got good grades and, you know, kind of comes back home and suddenly it's like, well, you know, who the fuck are you now? Yeah, you, you, know, sort you, of you think you're better than us, boy? Yeah, right. you, and a lot of it, it's it's not like deliverance country. It's not, no. you know, it's not said. It's just sort of something else. I mean, know? in this case, it's a resentment where Jacob and Lou are definitely older than Hank. So Hank was right. the kid brother. He was the one that they probably looked down on and, and kicked around when he was younger. And mm. then he ended up being far more successful than them. And that kind of resentment just carries over. And I mean, they, they can still sort of fulfill that kind of bullying role. But at the same time, they're incredibly insecure around him to the point where they're always mocking him and trying to put him down to put keep him under them. Well, and there's a there's a socioeconomic element that's mm-hmm. all through this film. And um you know, that's probably the thing that really jumped out at me is uh, particularly, I mean, I saw this at 18 and kind of like, oh, yeah, they're talking about like, you know, wanting wanting a good life for themselves. Yeah. And um, in a way, it's 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 a movie that's almost made much more for like 2017 than 1998 <laughs> um, because, you know, 98 was kind of the good times. Yeah, definitely speaking. compared. Yeah, yeah. You know, like comparatively speaking, like now, um, I mean, the, a guy... I mean, the thing is, like, today, an accountant at a feed store in, like, rural Minnesota would not be doing much better than the the guys living on welfare today. Right. You know? And so, uh, you know, I, things have gotten even more desperate today than they, than they were then. But but ultimately, what we're seeing is, you know, for Lou and for Jacob, this money is a ticket to a life of any kind that doesn't just involve getting drunk and sitting at home and, you know... Mm-hmm. collecting a welfare check yeah you know? uh, it's it's a key to doing something else that with your life yeah. and to having a life it, it's interesting jacob does talk about his dreams but he does so in a very sort of ironic way where he he knows it's never going to happen for him and he knows things aren't going to be okay the, the thing is jacob he's perceived by the characters in the film as not being all that smart but he's a guy who actually does 
catch on to people and the way people are and what the bigger picture of some situations are, even if he's, you know, he makes mistakes and blunders and things like that. He knows near the end of the film that I'm never going to be happy and this isn't going to end happy for us. But he, you know, he basically looks at Hank and says, yeah, well, this money is going to make it all right for us, isn't it? I'm going to find me a a good woman who's going to treat me right and who's going to like me for me. And uh, we're going to sit out on your porch and drink and we're going to play with your daughter and all this stuff. And he's saying this and you can tell he doesn't believe it. You can tell he's right. just basically looking at Hank, basically accusingly, like, do you think any of this shit's really going to happen? It's not going to happen. Well, I mean, and, and it's even darker than that because I think that... Uh... You know, he even sort of accepts it like, well, you know, if I've got if I've got a million dollars, like somebody want to be with me just to right. take care of them. Yeah, like it's not even, oh, somebody will like me for who I am. And the reality is that people who are like this, you know, tend to not, especially in like small towns where the, the idea that he's like so he's never kissed a girl before and he's in his 40s. Like mm-hmm. at some point, somebody took this kid to, to a hooker. Right. You know? Like, like, you know, like, I mean, that's just, that's just sort of how this works in these, in these little towns, you know, like somebody threw a lay his way at some point because he's not, you know, and, and I, I don't want to belittle that. I mean, you know, but, but the idea that he's completely bereft of any kind of human interaction for his entire life, mm-hmm. that's, that it's, they push that button a little bit too hard. I, you know? I would agree with that. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the idea, the, I mean, you know, you, you have to kind of turn it down a notch where like, oh, I, I got laid that couple of times when like somebody paid for it for me but like all that you know the good times are behind me now you know like that, that that's sort of a more realistic that would have rung more true if he said well like the only women i've ever been with are ones i paid for or something like that right. you know but i mean you know within the context of a small film like this i buy it enough because of billy bob thornton's performance i can overlook it um yeah, yeah. and again it's it's fucking heartbreaking to just see that like his his raw just himself totally honestly just put forward like the thing about him is he's the most honest character in the film like he does he's the moral center yeah he doesn't want... i mean he's after and when he thinks he killed the old man he drives off because his brother says go go here and then i'll kind of come back and then he says i gotta turn myself in i gotta i don't care because he's like he he's the he's the one who's saying you know what <laughs> I fucked up big time here. I we got to make this right, yeah. you know. And it's it's the smarter characters, the smarter in in quotation yeah. marks there, who are the ones who are really behave with the you know the the sort of um, moral, the amorality. Well, they're they're the, the ones who. Drives, yeah. I mean, Hank and especially Sarah are the ones who rationalize around these things and and you know, well, rationalize to themselves that uh, how far they will accept. You know what? What kind of shit will they accept to rationalize keeping this money and and going on? Well, if Jacob is the sort of moral center, then Sarah is the kind of the <laughs> the femme fatale. Yeah, know? sort of. I mean, yeah. if you want to call it, if you want to call it a war, I mean, she she's the devil at the heart of the film. But and uh, ultimately, her, I think, on a first time through and kind of like thinking in sort of crime movie terms. You're thinking, oh, she's clever. She's thinking ahead. You know, she mm-hmm. she's the one. So after she discovers the money, she's the one kind of doing the calculations and going, okay, here's here's what we have to do. You have to go back to the plane, 
and put like fifty thousand dollars back in the back in the plane so that when they find it they'll think oh you know there's money in the plane I mean you know yeah. it's not even really clear exactly like how she thinks this is gonna work but she's like there's got to be some money in the plane or else they'll know you took it and I guess I guess the thought is if there's fifty thousand dollars in there then like somebody got away with a little bit of it. Right. And then the rest of it just got lost, and they'll. I mean, I think it's just to like throw suspicion off. But it's ultimately that decision and that like, okay, this is what you have to go do. That then leads to the first murder, which really leads to the whole like sequence of events. That the well, you know, the yeah, whole movie is about. It's it's, it's a series of people with ideas of how this should happen being failed by the people under them that they give the ideas to. I mean, she gives the ideas to Hank, and then Hank dolls those ideas out to Jacob and Lou, and it just sort of fails upwards. It fails upwards up the chain. Like, uh, I mean, imagine if it had been Sarah and Hank who had gone to take the money. Yeah. Like, if Sarah had been like, okay, I'll wait with the car, you just go take the money here. Jacob hadn't gotten involved, you know, maybe things would have worked out. Right. Well, here's the thing. It wouldn't have, though, because there is this real twist at the end where you discover that this kidnapping money, the FBI managed to get 10% of it or so. Right. Yeah. The serial numbers written down before they gave it away. So at some point, spending this money, it was going to lead back to you and you were going to get caught right. with it. So uh, at the very end, the the sort of dark joke of this all is that None of this needed to happen if they had turned the money in at the in the first place, and they probably would have got a pretty good reward for finding that money and turning it in too. When you think sure, about it, yeah. if they had done that instead of being greedy and keeping the money, there wouldn't be six dead people just because of their greed and their mistrust. It's just a nice, really ironic, sad joke. Yeah, I mean the whole the whole thing is ultimately a shaggy dog story. Yeah, because it's just in the end. They have to burn the money anyway, and that's yeah. Eventually, they get caught, but nobody dies, and mm-hmm. you know they just get caught. You know, <laughs> they got they get a prison, but sure, right? It's it, and so it really is like you're right. It is sort of like she delegates it, and therefore, you know, kind of kind of lends you leads them down this path of like mistakes and contrivance and you know, kind of comedy of errors kind of thing. I mean, there is a there is a dark comedy element to some of this. Yeah. Uh, where despite the fact that it's it's not played that way, I mean it is there there is an absurdity that the that the film is kind of walking this fine line between uh this completely absurd um you know okay, we gotta make this work how does this how do how do we fix this so it looks a certain way right. you know and some of the some of the performance um the other time that um Sarah gives you a um a good piece of advice of like here's how you take control of the situation again. It's like, yeah, you just record Lou confessing to the crime, and she has it all worked out, yeah. right? Yeah, you just you get Jacob, so you do it first, and then you get Jacob to do it, and then once you've done it, then you record Lou, and then everything's gonna be fine. Yeah, <laughs> and Lou's not gonna like pull out a shotgun and say, "Give me that fucking tape." Yeah, you know? it, that was a big miscalculation right there. It's like, yeah, man. well, and like showing it to him like right then is really the, the key. Was, it's like, no, you yeah. you say you make a copy of it. Then you but like no. if you if you, you know but no no it doesn't work that way. Uh, one of the big things is even though Hank is you know tactically a bit smarter, a bit more savvy than Jacob and Lou, he's not really that smart. Well, and that's none of them are really that no, smart. No, they just and they're I dumb. That, I think that, they make mistakes. I think, that, 
the key is that like no one is that smart. You're always gonna you're always gonna miss a detail. I mean, you know, Sarah's like, well, was there blood when he when he hit him in the head? Was there blood? Yeah. I don't remember. Was there? You know, I and obviously it's like I didn't even think to look because I was in that moment and you weren't. So like, stop blaming me for not looking for blood. Yeah, there. It's sort of the there, uh, there's kind of a foreshadowing to all this. Like early on in the film where you have all these crows ominous in the woods. They're all oh, they're yeah. all there for one reason. They're greedy. They want to eat that corpse in the plane. It's it kind of foreshadows these guys. Their greed basically blinds them to the small details that they need to know to survive this. Are you saying there's a nature red, you know, there's like a red and <laughs> a bloody nature like uh, symbolism theme going on? Yeah, there's a little bit with, like, there. Like foxes yeah. grabbing grabbing uh, chickens. Yeah. Uh, running through the forest. I mean, that's why that's why the they end up in the nature reserve to begin with. Is mm-hmm. you know they they see a fox, they decide to spare it. They slam on the brakes and damage the truck, and then just decide, oh yeah, let's just hunt here. It's yeah. fine. No, I'm just taking back a debt. I mean, it, it's it's funny how much like there it's so coded. Like you can tell from the. Like, like once you've seen the film, you kind of go back through, and it's just like, man, they're really laying on the uh, the symbolism and the the sort of a uh, layered. Uh, this is how these people just think about the world thing very early on, right? You know, um, almost from the very first lines of the film. No, I love Bridget Fonda in this. This is again one of those like Bridget Fonda roles for me. I just mm-hmm. I always think of her. Um, the pregnancy I think is a really interesting because she literally like her baby has just been born. And they're sitting there and they're basically planning on, you know, like, here's how we, like, plot to um, take the power away from Lou, you know, right. sort of thing. So, so well, yeah, she, there's this, she's, got... like, she's created life, but also, you know. Um, well, yeah, yeah, this... it's, it's a good dichotomy there. She's got the maternal motivation and also she just has that scene where she basically just lays it all on the table for Hank. Do you think I want to be your wife for the next 30, 40 years where you working in the fucking feed store and me working in the library? And we always have to buy secondhand clothes for our kid. And in this shit, like, she's like, I'm thinking about our kid. I'm thinking about myself. I'm thinking about you. I'm thinking about this family doing something instead of just being normal people. When really, at, at, at the start of it, they should have been happy to just be normal people and maybe make a go of it some other way. When you look at the level of poverty that, like, Jacob and Lou have, mm-hmm. and you look at their problems, and you look at the problems of everybody else, and she's a little bit like, I don't want to fucking clip coupons. Mm-hmm. You know? Secondhand clothes, fuck that shit. You know? Yeah. Like, she's... I think she's the one that really is expressing greed here. You know? Yeah. Lou has a line where he says, you know, oh, we is talking about himself and Jacob. We need the money. He just wants it talking about Hank. But Hank, I, I don't know. I mean, Hank's kind of the big cipher. Like, I think he just kind of goes along because he, he's just going along with it to a degree. Yeah. But Sarah, once she finds out about it, is like actively plotting. You know, she's right. no, no, no. I have plans for this money. We're gonna, we're gonna set ourselves up. And um, in a way, that's really the more despicable thing. Although, um, I guess, I guess now we should talk about Hank. Yeah. <laughs> and Bill Paxton. I just, I just want to say it's it's. It's not quite the level of Lady Macbeth and Macbeth. Let's just put it that way. So. <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's not. I mean, it's not like pure evil, but it is. It is sort of one of those things of 
again at 18 i sort of was like oh yeah of course she doesn't want you know that's that's her character you know you put it in context with the rest of the film and it it very obviously becomes like oh my god you so literally people have died so you don't have to wear secondhand clothes that's your logic yeah you know the the balance is definitely uh, a little shifted after a while there but yeah bill paxton initially he comes off as like a jimmy stewart kind of character in this like he's the 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 happy everyman in the small town who everyone knows and he just says hi to and jokes with as he's walking to work and shit like that well he's sort of he's sort of the the um that stereotypical like i mean you're right jimmy stewart i'm thinking uh, you know it's a wonderful life you Mm -hmm. know sort of uh wandering through wandering through downtown and it's not quite like oh hey mr postman hey mr police (laughs) officer you know um it doesn't it doesn't go to that level well no Um, it's a modernized version of that this, this this isn't a David Lynch movie or anything, no. <laughs> um, but uh, you know he's definitely you know he's a well he's our protagonist he's the person we're supposed to kind of like and, and be on board with, you know you kind of mentioned it as a neon war a couple of times and um, I see it more as a psychological thriller, not that those two things are mutually exclusive but if you view it through that lens I mean really a lot of the things that like work in a noir is where the protagonist makes decisions and we don't know, quite know why. Mm-hmm. And so the the whole thing is about examining, you know, this sort of central character. And I think that that really works here because, I mean, he, he's the one like, oh, yeah, we got to turn the money, you know, yeah. immediately. Pretty much the second they say, I don't know, we don't have to turn this money. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, he isn't dumb enough. He's smart enough to not buy the logic that they're feeding him. Yeah. But he wants the money anyway. Yeah. He, he just wants it. He And he... um. Well, and he also knows that if he tries to turn in the money, there's going to be trouble between between those three too. So he's he's trying to he's trying to. Uh, well, I think I, I, no, I, yeah. I I think he wants it, but at the same time, I think he's trying to rationalize it to himself that he's sure. trying to smooth it out between those three and keep control of it. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. I mean, I I guess I guess I'm just thinking like you know he could have like very easily like you know once he had the money, then he could have just taken it right to the sheriff and been like, all right, right, we found this. I'm bringing it to you. Do what you will with it. You know, once he's gotten away from the other two, you know, what what this film or what his performance makes you think of is that you know we kind of process him as like, oh, he's a decent guy. He's a he's a good man, and we know he's a good man because you know he's honest. He treats his customers honestly. He's got a decent job, you know, and that's that's just kind of how we view people in our day to day lives. And yet, so few of us have actually been like tempted by real right. moral questions, you know. If I ran across $4.4 million in the middle of the woods, you know, I'm just glad I've never been tested by that, honestly. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a a real thing that the film is really giving us. Because if we are looking at this through Hank's perspective and through Bill Paxton's performance, the fact that he's a little bit blank, the fact that he's a little bit... You don't quite know where he's coming from with everything that maybe... You know, it's not like he's scheming that he's got multiple, like, motivations as much as... I don't think he quite knows why he's doing it half the time. He just kind of, he decided he wanted the money. And then certainly he, he does the first murder. I mean, the first murder is his. Yeah. And the reason that he does that, I think, is out of protection for his brother. Mm-hmm. Because uh, uh, Jacob has just uh, kind of basically um, forced him to say, hey, you know, we're not going to go to jail for this, right? Like, this is, you know, it's all going to be fine. Right. And with that kind of ringing in his ears, I think that that's a very obvious, like, they're going to wonder why Jacob hit, hit him in the head with a tire iron, and it's all going to come crashing down. But I think there's also a very legitimate, you know, I need to protect my brother in this moment. Yeah. 
Um, but he also like comes to it very easily. You know? Yeah, I mean, and, and smothering a dude, smothering an old man crying for help, lying in the snow with his own scarf, like that—that's a pretty brutal way to kill somebody. I'm just mm-hmm. say. Yeah, no, I mean, some revelations come out of what he's capable of that I think even scare him to a certain degree. Where he... I mean, it ends with it. He kills his brother yeah. at the end. No, he just he shoots him in the back. I mean, he I mean, uh, he's asking him to. But at the same time, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, he, there's, he doesn't argue. He doesn't. He just stands there and goes, "All right." Well, boom. He's yeah. he's he's put into position. And he's basically forced to. It's like either you make it look like this fake FBI guy who's really the the other kidnapper looking for the money. Either you make it look like he shot me, or I'm just going to shoot myself, and then you're going to have a whole much more questions asked you that you just can't fucking answer. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. And so, I mean, yeah, I mean, you, you can tell, you can tell it hurts him and you can tell that like the whole weight of the years and years of whatever wedges were put between these two as, as brothers and their family and shit, it, it does crash on him. But at the same time, he does pull that trigger and make that decision. He's not without some sort of capability for evil, you know, like he, yeah. he, he, he can do it. He discovers what he's really capable of. Right. And then the whole thing is at the end of the film. It's like some days. Some days I don't even think about that thing that happened. You know? Yeah, and he has. But those days are few and far between. Yeah, now he just lives uh, this loveless shell of a life. I mean, he's he's going through the motions, but now he knows exactly who he is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, yeah, I was capable of this. That's something that a lot of people who do horrible things engage. You know, like cooperate with horrible regimes and that sort of thing, and then uh, you know, kind of that ends and they get going with the rest of their life. You know. That's very much the kind of language they they use for it, right. you know. And um, you know, it is, it is that sort of thing where so few of us have ever really been tested by that. Yeah. And um, thank goodness for that. But yeah. uh, Hank is tested. He finds out exactly who he is, and then he gets to live with that for the rest of his life. Yeah. And I think that's what makes this movie so great. It's just it really fucking sinks its hooks in on the viewer, like because it. It it really drags you in with them. Their their performances are so low key and restrained that you just you fall into it and you get sucked up into their world. You can't look at it outside as of uh, if it was a you know a lesser sort of neo noir where it had bigger performances and more stylized performances. You could kind of look at them as cartoon characters almost, but here it just feels like real people. So you get caught up in the same psychology as them. You you feel what they feel. You understand what they feel. You probably, to at least some degree, I'm, I'm pretty sure everybody has had this sort of dynamic in their family, you know, yeah. even if it's not as extreme as this. So you relate to everything that's going on, and it just makes it that much more tragic and that much more just horrifying at the end to, to see what he has to do to keep on going on with his wife and his kid and what he has to fucking live with afterwards. I mean, I agree with all that. And, and I'm just, again, talking about tone, I mean, we compare this to something like Blood Simple, you know? Right. Where Blood Simple has a similar sort of, like, you know, the the tension keeps twisting. We keep uh, getting more and more convoluted plots. I mean, that one's, you know, got more people kind of doing more things, and that one's a lot bloodier. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a film that's about, like, the pleasure of watching horrible people just sort of be horrible to each right. other. And this tones that down, like, five or six notches, but then digs in through psychology and, and um, is about exploring who are these people who can do these things and who do we really want to have in our lives, yeah. you know? Because, again, I think I think it's easy, at least for someone like me, to kind of go, yeah, I mean, Bill Paxton, I mean, they make fun of the way he drinks whiskey, mm-hmm. you know? 
they make fun of, you know, God, there's that great line, you know, I don't drink like that. You know, my dad didn't drink like yeah. that. You know, like, God, fuck, man, that's just such a great little moment. But, you know, it's, you know, you think about, you, you watch this film and you kind of at the beginning, you're like, yeah, you know, Hank's a, he seems like a decent guy, all right? He's going out with his brother and his brother's alcoholic friend and they're going to go hunting. All right, it's, you know, like, he, he's he's trying to be involved. He doesn't really care, but he's he doesn't really like hanging out with them, but he's he's there with them. Yeah. Maybe he's a little got you know, to stick up his ass, and maybe he's a little bit got his nose in the air. But you know, he's he's not a terrible person. The other two are sitting there like writing their names in the snow with their dicks. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, Billy Bob Thornton, and you know, Jacob runs out there and he's like, "All right, let me let me get my picker out," you know. And um, it's very easy to kind of go, "God, you know, why are you know?" It's very easy to kind of make the class argument, right? right. And, and kind of have a classist attitude towards it. But really, I mean, the only one of these people that I like respect at all is Jacob. You know? mm-hmm. Like at the end of the day, he's the, he's the one who makes the correct choices. Yeah, he's, and, um, he, he's the decent guy who actually knows right from wrong. Yeah, and and really nobody else in the film other than maybe the uh, the cop, you know, the sheriff. Yeah, who's know? just sadly just suckered by the fake FBI agent. Other than that, like you kind of suspect early on that. Uh, he's starting to catch on, and he might be the one who like catches Bill Paxton up in a lie and like arrests him or something like that. Like you kind of get that idea when you're first watching this film. That's what I first thought when I first watched this film. Yeah. That okay, he he seems like he's putting on the friendly cop kind of thing, where you know try to lure the guy in a little bit, use your cop tricks to you know try to maybe get some clues, some confessions out of a person. But no, he's just a nice guy who kind of gets roped in and dies not knowing why basically yeah i mean it's and 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 uh hank's running down the hill make him show you your badge yeah. <laughs> it's like Shit. come on hank what are you talking about with the fucking badge man yeah <laughs> i mean i mean hank should have honestly just shot the guy right there but i mean you know yeah well then you'd never i mean and it is like how do you how do you establish this guy isn't an fbi agent yeah you know like how to like if you just shot him and then it's like well now you just shot this guy yeah. you know um, so, I mean, God, it's such a, it's such a little, and it get what it gets really right is like in the moment, like what, what the fuck are you supposed to do? Right. You know, I really love the way the, uh, the film plays with tension in that last, there's not a lot of violence. There's not a lot of, uh, you know, kind of gunplay and stuff in the film, mm-hmm. but it really kind of plays on this sort of like situational psychological tension yeah. in that last 30, like 20 to 30 minutes. Or the uh, the fake FBI agent Gary Cole. Yeah, we didn't even mention Gary Cole. <laughs> just being Gary Cole yeah. in this, just being awesome. You know, the the idea that uh, you know, he's kind of coming in and you know, is he or is he not the the kidnapper? How is this really working? And then you know the like stealing the gun from the from the right. gun safe and then having to you know just grabbing a handful of find the right bullet. Yeah. Them will, will, will fit in the gun. Um, yeah, no, it's a it's such small scale, but really well achieved here you know because it's it's based on the sort of like the actual mechanics of like a day-to-day world you know it's not over the top it's just like now like just hope one of these bullets works in this gun and hope that i can hit him because that's that's the only hope i have at this point you know yeah 
One film this reminds me of. Uh, have you ever seen Affliction? Nick Nolte no, and James. I, I know the, I know the film. I have not. I've seen bits of it. I've not seen the whole film. No. This reminds me that that's not a really a crime film or anything, but it's uh, the the family drama in A Simple Plan really reminds me of Affliction as well. Uh, it, it's just got that sort of same, and it, there's a lot. It's a winter setting and shit like yeah, yeah, yeah. For sometimes I confuse the two films. <laughs> um, <laughs> But uh, but yeah, I do love this film quite a bit, and I'm glad we got to revisit it. And uh, unless you have any sort of final thoughts on it, uh, that's kind of where I uh, two two things I'll, I'll I'll pull out here just for um, you know as long as you're uh, for one thing uh, the Sam Raimi shot we got to talk about uh, the uh, the shotgun blast to the stomach which uh, yeah caused, yeah the ragdoll effect the uh, the, the deadite yeah <laughs> you know, she flies like, right to the yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's 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 well done. Like there there are little Sam Raimi touches here. I mean, uh, you look at the initial thing with the crows in the trees. The woods mm-hmm. look very scary and foreboding. That's a trademark Sam Raimi kind of thing. Just the dead body in the plane being pecked at by the birds, and uh, once the plane shifts, the body smacks into the fucking console, uh, control console on the plane, and you see some of the frozen blood chip off and hit the floor and stuff like he still got his little bit of shit in there sam raimi does but he he's remarkably well restrained in this film it 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 just felt like such a smooth transition it's like yeah i can do restrained yeah and uh i mean just the, the gore i mean as, as long as we're just i mean the uh like you mentioned that the dead body in the plane and that i mean that's just that's really effective i yeah. think you know I like how he thinks it's moving at first, but it's no, it's a crow on the other side pecking at the face. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Raimi knows how to, I mean, he's not above still going for that moment of like, you know, and then it's a bird pecking at his mm. eye, and that's that's when the head is moving. Um, and also, you know, Hank kind of gets in, and he's like, uh, I mean, he doesn't know what's, what the fuck's going on. He might he might need medical attention. He might still, no, right. no, this guy's dead. Yeah. He's completely dead. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's that's just the way it goes. The other thing, just uh, just to kind of close out our, our kind of chat about Bill Paxton, and uh, Paul distracted me with his drunkenness, or I would have asked him about this too. Did you ever get the Bill Paxton, Bill Pullman gag? Like the idea that Bill Paxton and Bill Pullman, that you can't tell them apart? Because I have no issue telling Bill Paxton and Bill Pullman I don't, No, I never got that. I, I, I've never even heard that before, so... I would be. I think it's. I think it's because their names are, you know, Bill Paxton, Bill Pullman, and I think people forget which one is which. But like for me, Bill Paxton is weird science, and Bill Pullman is spaceballs. And right. They're, you know, like they're they're too like it. I mean, it, it, it was a gag on like Conan O'Brien. Back oh, in the day, you know, well, sort of thing, you know. Well, no, where that doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work because they're very. They're two very different actors in certain ways. I mean, I could see their career trajectory. Maybe that kind of fits a bit, but Bill Pullman has never really had the bigger films that Bill Paxton has had at the same time. I mean, you know, Bill Pullman is like Independence Day and While You Were Sleeping. Right. Like those, you know, like... But I mean, as far as showing up in bit parts and interesting pictures, they're both very mm-hmm. similar in that way. Yeah, yeah. But no, Bill Pullman. Bill, no, I've never been confused by. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's just I, I think it really is just people forget which one is which. I mean, but it's not even like the Corys, you know, like Corey Haim and Corey Feldman. Yeah. You know, where I can't even remember which one is which today. <laughs> you know? Corey Haim's dead. Corey Feldman wishes he was dead. That's the. Yeah. 
I guess that's yeah. I, I forget which one. I I kind of I can remember because Corey Haim is the one who uh, voiced a Ninja Turtle. So you know that's ah, well, there that's you go. the that's that's the way to remember it. You know, it had frosted hair. I remember um, Corey Feldman for killing Jason the first time. That's what I remember. Oh sure, fair enough. Dream a little dream. Anyway, we're we're way off topic here. <laughs> it's just it's just one of those things where it's like such a uh, it was such a gag for so many years. I guess I'm surprised you never heard it before. That it was kind of a joke. Like oh you know, man, no. It seemed like it was sort of a go to thing for hacky stand up comedians for a while. Well, that explains it showing up in Conan O'Brien. Then <laughs> I do, I do, I do kind of love Conan O'Brien. Um, uh, I, but, I do because uh, he he is Conan uh, O'Brien is the greatest of the hacky community. He is a he, knowing hack, and he plays yeah. it up very well. Yes, yeah, yeah. So, um, and uh, he was way better in the '90s. So we'll just leave it. At yeah, that. But, definitely. When he still had something that he 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 had to fight for his food on his plate. Let's put it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, oh man. man, but yeah, no. Just wanted just wanted to ask just to just to see how you thought about that because I never got it, and I think it's. I don't think any like any person who's like a fan of these people would ever like can like oh was it Bill Paxton or Bill Pullman who was in Independence no, Day? No, no, Jesus Christ! I wish they'd done a film together just to fuck people. <laughs> I'm kind of picturing Bill Pullman in Independence Day now, though that would be interesting. Or Bill Paxton in Independence Day. Uh, you, you just did it. Oh we shit! Just did... I just fucked up. You oh, just fucked man, up. Man, man, there we go. My my no, facade I, no, is no. broken. I'm imagining like Bill Paxton, Bill Pullman buddy comedies, like uh, <laughs> like a pair of cops, you know, right. where Bill Pullman is sort of the the by the rules guy, and Bill Paxton's the uh, you know the the Mel Gibson type, kind of going in and yeah, because yeah, no. he would be that, he would be the the crazy one. Game over, man. Game, game over, man. They would do that too, because it would be a bad buddy cop comedy from the '90s where they're just recycling shit. So they would find some way to work that line in. Yeah, they would. They would. <laughs> uh, so the budget for this was seventeen million. I've also seen thirty million, which may be corrected for you know promotional shit. I assume, but the box office was sixteen point three million. Either way, so this was not a success as far as box office goes. Uh, but it was a critical success. They had what three Academy Award nominations? I think th- two or three. And a goal- I think it was two. I think it's. Uh... Adapted screenplay and then uh, uh, Billy Bob Billy Thornton. Thornton. Yeah, he got a, got a nomination. Yeah, for supporting it. actor. And then they had the uh, Golden Globe nomination. Then they won a bunch of minor awards as well. Yeah. But a critical darling at the very least. If you're looking for this on DVD or Blu-ray, go to uh, Paramount for the DVD in 1999. There is no Blu-ray yet for this. There, there's a I think a German Blu-ray for this, but no uh, uh, American one. I don't even know if the German one has American soundtrack or subtitles on it. But I mean, if it's Blu-ray, it's basically probably region free so if you want to look for that that might be worth doing i bought the dvd for this podcast Mm because i didn't own it before and um yeah it's very much a uh, late 90s dvd with it has a theatrical trailer that's that is the paramount standard yes (laughs) not not even subtitles well not english subtitles it has it has like four different languages but um you know, I, I'm kind of known on this podcast for watching everything with subtitles, and so it always uh, gets. I I get frustrated when they don't give me subtitles. Right? Yeah, I always get pissed off by that shit because because yeah. even sometimes it's like, hey, you want to watch it late at night, but you don't want to wake up everyone else in the house, so we'll turn the volume down, put subtitles up. Why not? Good Danny Elfman score in this as well. Oh 
Yeah, no, I hope there you throw some music from yes. that score on. Um, the best thing Danny Elfman has ever done, except for the Simpsons theme, as far as I'm concerned. I would agree with that, because I'm not a big Danny Elfman fan. Yeah, no, I mean, well, the thing is, Danny Elfman has just uh, suffered from, uh, well, I mean, he has dug himself the hole of being the Tim Burton's little bitch. Yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, you know we're just, I'm just going to work with Tim Burton through all his terrible movies that he's made over the last 15 years, and uh, therefore just drive my own reputation to the dust not even for any particular reason except Denny he just kind of does the same thing over and over again right. um, this is this is a really interesting score in fact I uh, you can uh, it is on like YouTube you can go and like listen to it and it's it's definitely one of those it's uh, it's nice uh, kind of like foreboding like I, I kind of uh, I was at work and I like threw it on one day and it's uh, it's it, nice it's, stuff it's very to. effective um, and, and, and strangely enough we substituted this for the limey Mm-hmm. The score in this has very similar elements to the Limey as well. <laughs> so well, uh, I, 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 was... I still haven't seen the Limey. It's unfortunate because I was really looking forward to seeing the Limey, and then Bill Paxton died. So yeah, you know. fucking Bill Paxton, that fucking selfish bastard. How dare he? Fucker. So we got to do frailty at some point. That's and yes. uh, one false move. We got to and a uh, near dark. So oh yeah, that we have to do for this podcast. We 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 have to. Uh, I think we should do Frailty and Near Dark in the same episode. That way, Paul will definitely be on board. We'll, f- we'll force him to watch Frailty, and he'll he'll jump out the gun for fucking Near Dark. So they'll. I feel I feel like we do Near Dark with Twilight. That's the the. No, movie. fuck off. <laughs> I'm. We are never doing. There, there is a ban on Twilight on this. Podcast. I'm just saying that right now. Uh, okay. We, Fair we, enough. we we might do the Hunger Games at some point, but we're we'll do we'll do Fifty play. Shades instead. That's oh, the... Well, <laughs> Fifty Shades. You know what Fifty Shades would be? That'd be a great commentary episode. That's what that would that be. That, that that would be. You know, we could just we could just spend the entire time talking about how non-interesting all the sex is in this film. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and then and then do an actual good fetish film afterwards. Right. Uh, anyway, we're way off topic now. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, hey, spaceman.libson.com. Go check me out. Yeah. Daniel Lee Harper at Daniel Lee Harper. That's my Twitter. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, of course, you can find us at tmbdos.podbean.com. You can find our iTunes, Facebook, and YouTube links there. And you should join our Facebook group because that is the best place to get in contact with us and find out what's coming up on the show. As for what is coming up on the show, depending on whether we can uh, schedule with either Jack Graham or Kit Power... It will either be Night in the City and White Heat with Kit Power or Fargo with Jack Graham next time. And if we cannot quite schedule them in for next week, one or the other, we will be doing The Driver and Drive. So that is the plan, and uh, you can uh, take our word on that. Yeah, you need to watch five movies to prep for what we might do next <laughs> no, week. No, no, no. We, so. we we will let everyone know on the Facebook page. On our Facebook page. So go follow our Facebook page. Exactly. That's the way to do it. But, uh, and check out A Simple Plan. It's definitely worth, uh, yes. definitely worth watching. It, it, it's one you should own, honestly. It's it's a great yeah. film. So, yeah, Daniel, great to be back talking about shit. Great to talk with you again. And uh, thanks for joining in tonight. It's a great, it's a great experience every time getting to hang out and talk movies with you. Yeah, and uh, even when they don't have Anne Margaret. Yeah, I mean, you know, they can't all have Anne Margaret, even though we wish they would. Anne Margaret would have improved a simple plan. 
especially if she was uh, singing that song. Well, was this from? Was she in yeah. one of the? Was she in one of those uh, grumpy old men films? She was in. She was in the first grumpy old men film. Yeah, right. And that one was set in winter. Yeah. So I mean, if those if those guys found four million dollars <laughs> and then started killing each other, <laughs> that would be Jack Lemmon kills Walter Matthau. <laughs> With with uh, Anne Margaret in the uh, Bridget Fonda role, right? Because that's what she would do. She'd be the femme fatale in that. Yes. Yeah. We just we just made the best movie ever. I was gonna say we we go full. Let's do the other kind of big goofy early '90s comedy and City Slickers, and let's bring Jack Palance in, and he'll oh. be the drunk. Okay, you know what was really funny? Uh, the the chat that uh, Paul and I had earlier before we uh, came on here. Mm-hmm. We were talking about people that Paul had actually encountered in real life as far as celebrities goes. And he was talking about how he actually uh, used to see Jack Plants around in his hometown. Oh, wow. As he moved back to basically be with his brother or whatever later in life. And apparently Jack Plants was a major asshole. <laughs> I believe that. <laughs> yeah, I believe it too. And we were talking. he's Jack Palance, so of course. I mean, yeah, he's just a prick. Yeah, yeah we, sure. we were talking about how, even though he was a major asshole, we understand that, yeah, he probably was. And that's what made him such a great actor at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> he's, got that, he's got that Jack Palance level of dickishness to him. We were saying he was the B movie. This, this, this rarefied ambrosia of dickishness. Yeah, we were saying he was the B movie Charlton Heston. Essentially, yeah, well, the B movie Charlton Heston is Charlton Heston, but well, you know. no, after well, maybe in the sixties and seventies, then he's the B movie Charlton Heston. But yeah, uh, I think we've gone off topic here enough, and thank you. No, Gary. that's that's great. Yeah, I, <laughs> stay to the end, people. You know, don't don't turn it off when we uh, when we when you think it's about to be over. Like like wait, this is the bonus content. <laughs> yeah bye Uh, yeah thanks everyone goodbye and we'll see you next time
Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Site. For past episodes, links to the host's other stuff and links to various podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can also find our iTunes, YouTube, and Facebook links. Please join our Facebook group, as this is the best way to get in contact with us and to keep up to date with what's coming up on the podcast. We also can be found as part of the Oi Spaceman family of podcasts at oispaceman.com, where you can find various sci-fi-themed podcasts about Doctor Who, Red Dwarf, Firefly, and classic sci-fi novels. If you decide to subscribe to us through iTunes, please take a moment to leave us a star rating and a review. Thank you. Drive through. <laughs>